Good morning. How are you guys? Excellent. Welcome to Christ Center. We'll talk this morning about a context for hope. I'm going to try to do something I've never tried to do in this setting before. I've done this before in classrooms, but never before on a Sunday morning church service. So we better pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you for all that you've already done this morning. Thank you that you uh, sit among us. And so, uh, Lord, I ask now that you would guide me um, to speak the things you have and to skip over the things that I would naturally drift and start talking about. And I pray that you would prepare all of us and speak to us individually. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. I was hoping we would have a place to put my coffee. I don't have a table. Aaron Oaks, where are you? Can you just come and just hands and knees here and I'll just, <laughs> I, I need a table. Maybe not. I'm going to talk about a context for hope this morning, but first I do want to give some very good news. The Rebel Alliance has defeated the evil galactic empire. Yeah! The second Death Star has been destroyed and the emperor is dead. So, it happened, I could go into it, but guys, it's unbelievable news. Who's jazzed? Who's excited? Only some of you, because this is so incredibly random. Half of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, because it's been many years since you've watched Return of the Jedi. And you might never have seen Return of the Jedi, and then you'd be even more lost. You see, generally, when you come and tell somebody the climax of a story, they don't just get really excited. Oh, look at you. Give this man a hand. What a guy. Oh my gosh. Aaron, cancel that. I might need a glass of water later so I could still use you at that point. You, you can't just necessarily get somebody excited by jumping in and telling them the climax. Uh, and and if, if you don't know what led up to that, you don't know why the rebels are in such danger, you don't know about Darth Vader and the history there, it's not going to make any sense to you, and it's not going to mean very much. Now, I think this is very true of the gospel as well. I think there are, are many of us who, in our zeal to share the gospel, maybe we go, Jesus died for your sins, yeah, and people go, what? <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't really know what that means, and I don't know why I should care. And we have some, we have some backstory, we have some background that's good, but I actually think there are many of us who don't know too much of the background. And at, we're about to plunge into this great New Testament journey, 12 weeks starting next Sunday, our, our reading. And uh, I'm already really enjoying it because I started already and I'm, I'm going ahead. And uh, I, I'm, I'm loving it, uh, getting, getting back to this. But before we jump into it as a body, I think we need some context. So this morning, I'm going to try to explain the Old Testament in about 20 minutes. Here we go. I'm actually serious. How many of you guys look at the Old Testament and it's like opening up a, 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 a closet and there's like basketballs and there's old sweaters and there's inline skates and there's all the stuff and you go, uh-uh, and you just close it. 
Anybody? Well, you don't have to raise your hand. Okay, we got some honest people. There you go. I, I think for many people, it is that way. I stole that analogy for, from an uh, Old Testament professor named Sandra Richter, and she has the whole uh, uh, explanation. She, she draws on that, and I thought, I wonder how many of us can relate to that. It's so cluttered. It's so confusing. It's a mess, and I don't know what to do with it. So let's just skip to Jesus. Whew, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I want to try to organize that just a little bit by taking us through the grand story. Amen? Here we go. I don't know why I said amen. I mean, so maybe just so be it. Yeah, let's, let's do this thing. Okay. And I have no idea if this graphic is going to work, so I'm sorry it's a little herky-jerky, but we're going to give it a shot. A long, long time ago, um, I can tell you the date, April 2nd, 4004 B.C. Anytime anyone tries to tell you they know the date of things that happened, way, way back in Genesis. You guys, it's just, not, it's just not possible. I'm sorry. But Genesis starts with a very simple yet profound truth that God started it all. I'm not going to get into details of what that looked like exactly or whatever, but God started it all. He creates out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He creates the world and he creates individuals. He creates us and he breathes life into us. His whole goal for this is that he can be with us. See, he's creating other creators. And I find that amazing. He doesn't create us to be like trees to just sit and look pretty. He creates us with the ability to create just like he does, to create choices, to create relationships. He creates us with the option to destroy in hopes that we'll choose love instead. So that's what he does. He creates Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says, be fruitful, multiply, and he's with them. Now we know what happens very quickly. He brings them into the garden, and there's wholeness. There's oneness. There's perfect unity, and very quickly that goes away. The serpent comes and presents the same temptations that we have today. The temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It says the fruit was good for food, lust of the flesh. It was pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes. And it was desirable to make one wise, even more wise than God. And so what do they do? They go with it. And they choose that over believing and following and obeying the creator himself. And that's the story of humanity. Rebelling against the perfect rule of the emperor of the universe in order to follow, in order to uh, get a piece of fruit. Pretty lame, but that's what happens. So right then, immediately, humanity has walked away from God and now we have a problem because his whole purpose in creating us was oneness. It was to be together. It was to live in the same house. But humanity doesn't want to. So right away, the Lord sees that and he says, you know what? This is not okay. This is not good. And he he, he, he speaks of a rescue mission that one day the seed of these people who, who broke his heart would, would one day crush the head of the serpent himself. There's a rescue mission. And that is what the Old Testament is. It's the story of the hatching of this rescue plan. The Garden of Eden, unity and wholeness both broken. And now... He searches out to find a nation and uh, specifically, first of all, uh, a person who will follow. Things get bad very quickly. 
they disintegrate, and the only thing to do is to start over. So he starts over, and in Genesis 12, he finds a man named Abraham, and we don't know much about Abraham. He was a rich man. He lived in this wealthy place. He lived in, like, the hippest, coolest metropolitan area, and he could drink lattes three times a day. It was a great place to be, and uh, he, he's there one night, and we, we don't know the background. We don't know much, but he hears the voice of God. I'm sure this was an audible voice. There's no other way this could have happened any other way, I think. Uh, he hears this voice. He says, come outside. And uh, uh, he looks up, and he sees the stars. Probably not in that detail because he doesn't have Hubble eyes. But (laughs) God says to him, do you see the stars? Can you count them? Your seed is going to be like that, Abraham. Your descendants are going to look like that. They would be a mighty nation, and I I will bless them. And if they follow me, they will continue to be blessed and they'll be a blessing to other people. Not only that, I'm going to bless the people that bless them. And if anyone attacks them, I've got their back. What do you say, Abe? Are you in? Imagine getting that invitation. Imagine an invisible voice takes you out under a a, a moonless night and looks up and makes you that kind of promise. Unbelievable. He says, "Uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. So he goes off. He goes off into the desert, doesn't even know where he's going. This, I'm sure everybody thought he was insane. He's breaking every cultural norm ever that ever existed. And he sets out. Now, God doesn't have a, a whole rescue here, does he? He doesn't have even a nation to bring that about. He doesn't even have a family. He just has a guy, Abe. That's it. So Abe's thinking, this is going to be really great. So I'm going to have a big family and all this stuff. And so he's going, okay, Sarah, guess what? We're, we're going to have a family. Well, they get older and older, and there's no nation. There's, you got to have one to start the nation. Well, after, after a while, finally, there is one. And uh, I'll let this catch up to me. Sorry, I'm always running ahead. So Abraham has a son, Isaac, and Isaac just has two sons. But Isaac grows up, and the Lord comes to him and says, hey, Isaac, want to make you a great nation. Your descendants are going to outnumber the, the sands on the seashore. And guess what? I'm going to bless them like crazy, and I got their back if anyone touches them. What do you say? You win? You win for all the nations of the world being blessed? And Isaac goes, sweet, I am so in. Isaac has two children. That's it. This is a slow-building nation right here. This must have been a little depressing. Like, yeah. And only one of them is even going to be a part of it. That's even extra depressing. Jacob grows up. Took, him, took Jacob a while to grow up, by the way, but we won't get into that. <laughs> Jacob finally grows up, and God comes to him and says, Hey, dude, how about this? How about I make of you a great nation? And Jacob says, Okay. Now, here's what's nice. Jacob had 12 kids, 12 sons. Whew. He some daughters. Now we can build a nation. This is good. This is good. Yeah. So, they They agree. So here we are, the, book, the rest of the book of Genesis is the story of this family and, and how this begins to unfold. And in the last uh, uh, 12 chapters or so, it's particularly the story of Jacob's 11th son named Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery, 
and everybody thought he was dead. They assumed that he was dead. Well, he wasn't dead. He was actually thriving, living it up in Egypt some of the time in a jail cell, but other times he was living it up and doing pretty well, and he stays faithful to the Lord. And through divine, incredible intervention and all this amazing prophetic stuff, somehow he ends up second in charge only to the Pharaoh himself over all Egypt. And he not only ends up saving his people, his family, he ends up saving the entire region from death because of famine. There's a severe famine. He warns everybody. Egypt becomes a storehouse. They all come. Now, isn't this interesting? This is long before Israel is a full-fledged nation. It's long before most of this has been fulfilled. But already, the Lord is blessing. He's already honoring that covenant of blessing. See, it wasn't a light thing going, yeah, you know, I'll have you over for dinner someday, Abraham. Yeah, we'll hang out. We'll watch the game. Happy NFL kickoff day, everybody. We'll watch the game. No, it was something more than that, wasn't it? I will bless you, and I'm not going to (laughs) relent. This is going to happen, and I'm going to save all of humanity through you. Well, he does save the region, and everything's awesome until, well, until this. Egypt turns on Joseph and his family after they all come, and they enslave them. The king is scared because they're becoming so numerous, so he turns them into his workforce, and he needs a lot of people because he's building lots of stuff. (laughs) And these guys are looking up after being in horrible subjugation, going, yeah, remember that promise? Thanks, Mom. I picture it like this. I picture that every morning, the guys get up sort of wordlessly, and they're just kind of looking at each other. Not even looking at each other. They're just getting their food rations for the day. And their mom is singing them the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think it was probably the women who, who kept, kept the, the story and the, the hope alive and, and the men turning bitter. That's the way I picture it. Maybe that's just because of the way our, our culture is. Uh, I would I, I would have. I'm afraid I might have been one to lose hope, and so it, it stings for them more than any of the other slaves of Egypt because the other the other slaves in Egypt don't have this great promise. You see, but because you have the promise and you haven't gotten it, it makes it ten times worse. So here they are. You have this great great destiny, but you are a slave. Oh, nothing's happening. Bitter bitter time. Well, there's a, a man finally a Bedouin exile out of Egypt, an old man who's just minding his own business, trying to forget his days in Egypt, and the Lord calls him up into a cave, and he reveals himself. He says, Moses, I want you to go back. I want you to march right back into Egypt, young man, and get your people out. And he says, and the Lord says, enough, I will be with you. And he tells them that over and over again. I will be with you, Moses. Moses, but, but what if? He goes, Moses, I will be with you. And he says, well, who should I say? Who should I say is telling me to come in? That's a sensible question because there were lots of gods in Egypt, lots of spirits that were worshipped, and lots of supernatural things that happened because they were real spirits. Imagine that. It's not some guys just playing hocus-pocus tricks. And Moses asks, what's your name? And he says, I am. 
Well, pretty interesting. People thought that either means I am that I am, I've always existed, but you know, more recently some scholars are thinking what it meant is I, I am with you, I will be with you. Isn't that interesting? Here's the message he's going back with. I will be with you. Wasn't that his original intention? You see, this is his intention all along, to be with them. They run away. He's coming back, and he's saying, here I am. I'm reintroducing myself to humanity, and here's my ultimate plan and purpose. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. So Moses does that, and we know what happened. He takes, uh, uh, he, he, he marches into Egypt And the Lord begins to demonstrate his power and demonstrate his love for his people. He also begins to demonstrate his love for justice. He doesn't like it when people are enslaved. And he begins to execute judgment both on Egypt and over the gods of Egypt. And one after another, I imagine the Israelites waking up and seeing a dark cloud to the south over Egypt. And somehow they're unscathed at this point and going, I think somebody really likes us. I think somebody's come to break us out. And that's what happens. And he pulls his people out of Egypt through miraculous means. He rescues his people and he says, I haven't forgotten about you guys. You thought I forgot, but I haven't. I haven't forgotten what I promised your great-great-grandfather. I'm coming for you. I haven't forgot you. And he comes for him and he takes him out. Imagine that day of celebrating. Imagine hearing Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston singing together. There can be miracles if you believe. So he brings them, <laughs> he brings them to the mountain. The, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all explain this time period. We're somewhere around 1500 here. These are not exact, obviously, I'm going very broad strokes, but you can sort of follow this timeline. We're sort of 1500 BC here. And uh, so they're in the desert, and uh, he, he, he brings them to his holy mountain. And Moses is up there. He looks suspiciously like Charlton Heston. (laughs) And the Lord writes out a covenant for them. He writes it out. He says, basically, love God, love others. Love God, the first four commandments are talking about love for the Lord and love one another. The the, the other six are about interpersonal relationship. This was going to be the kind of kingdom that he wanted to start. And he gives those to him. And he says to Israel, I want to be your God. Will you be my people? And they say, yes. Are you kidding? What did you just do for us? It was unbelievable. The plagues, the Red Sea, this is unbelievable. And he says, will you be my people? And you know what he does? He gets down on one knee. That's him. The God of the Old Testament was always after hearts. I'm really tired of people bashing God in the Old Testament because he's the same as Jesus. He was after their hearts, and they say yes to him. Unfortunately, their yes was pretty fleeting. They take the promised land, and soon after, they, uh, they get in this vicious cycle of turning to other gods, turning to the, the, the gods of, of Canaan, Baal, Ashtaroth, and Moloch, the gods of power, the gods of lust and sexuality, all these things, and, and they, they leave the God who they belong to, the God who they've married, they leave him completely. They break his covenant. But instead of just starting over, he says this, I'm going to, with, I'm going to t- take away my hand of protection for a time. 
And that's what he does. And so you'd have a nation like the Amalekites or somebody else come in. And they don't destroy them, but they harass them pretty bad. And so you have people going, help us, Lord. Oh, my goodness. We messed up. Oh, I forgot. Ah, you know. And so the Lord says, okay. And he raises up a superhero for him. He raises up a Samson. People wonder. People always draw Samson like, you know, He-Man kind of biceps and everything. I don't think he was. I think he was like a regular guy, like a scrawny dude. And, and that's why his, Delilah could say, Where, what's the secret of your strength? Because if he had, you know, he'd be like, well, I'm ripped. <laughs> what are you talking about? We're talking pretty much about a superhero here, essentially. The Holy Spirit comes on him, and suddenly he's able to do incredible things and deliver his people from an army, lead them into victory. Well, it's the same thing with Gideon. Gideon, the wussiest guy in the entire nation. The guy with his pocket protector and his broken glasses that he's taped together. And, and he's, he, God says, I'm going to deliver Israel through you. And he goes, me? <laughs> he needs a superhero. Yes, you, exactly. Because everyone's going to look at you, and they're going, uh uh that had to be God. He also breaks another total crazy cultural thing and picks a woman. This would never happen in the ancient world. And not only does that woman take him out, it's another, another woman who comes and finishes the job and goes, pew. Pretty crazy stories. That's a book of Judges. Now, this is not a book for kids. Especially the end, I'm telling you. This is not a children's book. It's a very vicious, very bloody book. And it's a very disheartening book because you get in a cycle. He'll raise up a Deborah. He'll raise up a Gideon. And they're set free. And they go, thank you, Lord. We're never going to turn away from you again. Now, where was I? Over and over again. Well, finally, finally, um, there's a man named Samuel. There's Gideon. I got ahead of myself. There's a man named Samuel who is a godly man, and he is ruling as well as he possibly can under the, under the circumstances. And people finally say, we want a king. We want to be like other nations. We want a king. And he tries to warn them. He tells them. He gives them history lessons. This is what happens when you have a king. It's not a good idea. And they say, we don't care. We want a king. So he gives them a king. So finally, around 1,000, more like 1,500, Israel became a united kingdom. This is what we think of when you think of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, there were three kings, of course. You had Saul, who actually was a really good guy in the beginning, uh, who... who uh, there's just something that happens when somebody gets that much power. They start to believe their own title. He, um, he, 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 he took advantage. He became paranoid, as so many of these little despots do. It's like, uh, you know, turning on everybody. And he thought his own son was conspiring against him. Tried to kill his own son. Tries to kill his most loyal subject, David. And finally, he ends up essentially going insane, and he dies. David becomes king. And this is the man we remember. The wonderful man, David, who wrote these incredible psalms to the Lord and uh, that we still sing today, 3,000 years later. He's still the best-selling songwriter in the world. Isn't that cool? He does this, and it's him. He, there's this poet, this, this soldier, crazy poet who, who becomes king. And he has an, an, an incredible heart. One of the things he asks God if he can do, he wants to build him a house. He wants to build him a temple, saying, you're so amazing and I have this, this great palace, and you've got nothing. You're in this box, which is a pretty cool box, I will say. But it's in a tent. I mean, come on. It's a tent. And uh, he wants to build him a palace, and the Lord says no. However, it's a really good kind of no, because he says, no, you know what? I didn't even ask for you to build me a house. 
How about this? How about I build you a house instead? And he makes, he, he refines that covenant that he's built with Abraham. And he now says, David, your descendants will never cease to sit on the throne. This covenant now, the, the ultimate king is coming through your line, David. People think he was upset at David. I don't think he was upset with that answer. David isn't able to build the temple, so he prepares for it. And his, of course, he, he messes up royally. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, and uh, it, it pretty much, uh, uh, you know, mars the rest of his, his entire kingship. And when he's an old man, Solomon takes over and he builds the temple that David planned. And now God has a physical place where he, where he is. It is a physical sign of the covenant in Israel. And all 12 tribes worship there. And they, they become very prosperous. Hey, nations from all over the world are coming to trade with them. You look at modern uh, maps of, of his trade routes, and it was huge. The territory that he, that he had was, was, was large, an incredible reach. Well, when Solomon dies, actually, he doesn't leave the kingdom in a good place because he himself, first of all, has turned and let his heart be turned. He thought, he thought the temple was a good luck charm, see? He thought it was a good luck charm. He thought that if he had that, then it didn't really matter what he would do because he could always just say, Lord, remember we have the temple. Remember we have that thing? So we're all good, right? Right? And they weren't all good. He lets his heart be turned. He marries hundreds of, of women, most of them political alliances, but nevertheless, he lets them bring in uh, all, you know, all their, their gods and their, their it just all the stuff. And it's, it's seriously messed up. And he, he takes it a step further. He ends up, in, in his zeal to make stuff, and he's got all this gold and all this wealth, he ends up enslaving his own people to do it, to build these things. So when he dies, people are not happy anymore. In fact, they say to his son, we don't want to serve you unless you're going to promise that this won't happen again. And his son doesn't promise. And here is an interesting thing. Many people read the Bible for years and never realize this. The kingdom of Israel becomes two kingdoms at this point. They split so here we have the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. It's 10 tribes. 10 of the 12 tribes are in the north. And the southern kingdom of Judah, the last two tribes. Very quickly, the northern kingdom was a total mess. This is about 930 that this happened. It was a total mess. Hardly any good thing happened here. You didn't have a single good king. All of them were wicked. Every last one of them was wicked. You have a couple of standout stories. You have Ahab and Jezebel. We all know those names, Ahab and Jezebel, and uh, incredibly wicked, so wicked they brought Baal worship into the palace and they, they made uh, uh, prophets of God renegades. They tried to stamp out the worship of, of the one true God and they brought in Baal worship. So God raises up one man, again, to be a superhero. Essentially, Elijah is the best superhero of the Old Testament. He's unbelievable. <laughs> His only job, basically, is to confront Baal worship and he does it in grandiose ways. Most memorably, he's on top of Mount Carmel, and he is having a showdown with King Ahab, his nemesis, and they say, which God is the real God? Ahab calls on his God, and Baal does nothing. Elijah calls on his God, and there's fire down from heaven that destroys the altar. He turns to the thousands of people watching, and he says, who are you going to serve? Can't you see? Can't you see? Well, they don't see. And he becomes depressed and that's pretty much the end of Elijah's ministry. He only does a couple other things. He becomes so depressed. What else can I possibly do to get people to turn back to the Lord? Because they don't turn. That is the story of the Old Testament. Most memorably, this prophet named Hosea, in about 750-ish, we think, 
he, he tries to call his people back to the Lord. And the Lord says, I'm gonna make you a physical demonstration. I want you to go and marry a prostitute. And he does. He goes and marries this prostitute, brings her into his home. He cleans her up. He, he dotes on her. He adores her. He gives her everything she could want. They end up having children. Everything's great. And then she ends up turning on him, running from him, and going back to her old life. Now what's he gonna do? He goes back to the slave auction in the middle of the town, and he, he stands, and imagine that. Like everybody knew who he was. He's like the Billy Graham of his day. He stands up in the middle of that courtyard and says, I want her back. And he buys her back. He redeems her back. He brings her back into the family. And he says, all right, Israel, did you see that? That's God. And he wants to buy you back. He wants to redeem you back. Come back, turn back. He loves you, he loves you, turn back. And they don't turn back, they don't. So here's the terrible part of this. You see that purple bar? That purple bar represents the life of the northern kingdom. 10 of the 12 tribes, it ends in the year 722. The nation of Assyria comes in and it wipes them out. The people are scattered throughout the empire and they're never heard from again. There's a whole lot of people that missed out on the covenant of the Lord because they refused to turn back to him. So sad, he tried everything. Southern kingdom fared marginally better. Southern kingdom at least had a couple of good kings. You had Hezekiah, he was a good king. But even he, you know, doesn't care much about the future. He's like, as long as I'm taken care of, it doesn't bother me that there might be judgment in my day, or in my, my kids' days, at least I don't have to feel it. Can you imagine? Another good king, Josiah, he was great. They had great prophets too, Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. Jeremiah calls those people back to the Lord and they don't listen. They don't listen. They will not hear. They have no desire to turn. So, in the year 587, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he lays waste to the city of Jerusalem and he destroys the temple and he takes the people away out of Israel. So here's what we're left with. These people with this wonderful, great promise. Oh, the Lord's going to bless the whole world through us now has nothing. They have no temple. They have no physical location. Their, their country is laid in ruins, and most of their people are either dead or taken away. It's a very sad state of affairs. This is where many of the prophets come in, major prophets and minor prophets. Ezekiel and Daniel, for example, were, were carried away to Babylon. Many of the major and the minor prophets continued to, they, speak for, they spoke forward about hope. There, there will be, I'm telling you, there will be hope still. You think there's not going to be hope. This is where Jeremiah actually said, I know the plans I have for you. Good plans, not wicked plans, to give you a future and a hope. That wasn't spoken at somebody's graduation, friends. That was spoken in the midst of ruins. <laughs> Isn't that something? He spoke hope into the darkest place possible. Basically saying this, you will not be as the northern kingdom. You will not disappear. I have a remnant, and I will fulfill my promises. Well, they go on, many of them, to Babylon, and they make homes in Babylon. See, this is an opulent place. It's where Nebuchadnezzar had the hanging gardens, one of the wonders of the world, beautiful place, and uh, they, they settle down. And from here on out, we have a dispersed nation. Some of them come back because uh, there's great favor. You had uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, uh, earn the favor of the king to come back and actually rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. So you have some of them coming back. And once again, you have people in Israel 
who are Jews, who are following the Lord, they're right there. It's not like it was, believe me, it's not like it was. They're not even really a kingdom. They're not. But they have some people there and they have a start. And what they did is actually once, once the, the walls were rebuilt, they had a time where they celebrated Passover and they got together and they said, Lord, you made a covenant with Abraham. You said you would bless him. You said you would bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. We've walked away from you. We want to renew that covenant today. And they do. They renew the covenant that was broken, that, they're, that they had broken. So once again, there are people with a destiny. There's not too much else before the end of the Old Testament. Um, the, the prophets continue to speak. They, they tell that great things are coming. We have uh, the story of, of Esther. We have all kinds of uh, uh, fun things that happen outside of Jerusalem. And then we go through 400 years of silence. People are waiting. They're waiting for the last thing the prophet spoke. The prophet spoke, he is coming. He's coming. The Messiah is coming, and he's going to repair what was broken. In the meantime, they were almost extinguished at least two more times. Not counting the uh, story of Haman and Esther. Almost two more times they were totally done away with yet again. So what do we have? Well, here's kind of what we're left with. We're left with the Jewish people, and there's a tiny little dot that would, rep that would show Israel on that map. And that's the Roman Empire. And these guys are still clutching on to that promise, clutching on the promise that they're the people of God. And they're, they're believing it so much that they're trying to, they're always trying to rebel and overthrow Rome. Do you see that map? Not going to happen. But they're so committed to this idea, the Lord will restore what was broken. They think another Moses is going to come in and lead them out. And they're holding on to that. Now it's in this world that Jesus is born. In this world. When they're still holding on, still hoping, still waiting. They don't, they, they don't have it right what they're hoping and waiting for. But they're doing their best. They're, they're, they're holding on to it. They think it's something for them. It's not going to be political, see? And it's not just going to be about them. Yes, the Messiah will come and restore. But he's not restoring back to the kingdom of David. He's restoring back to the Garden of Eden. That's what he's come to restore to. He's come to restore the separation and the brokenness. He's come to be the God who is with you. And he believes in that so much that he actually steps down in human flesh as a baby so that he can physically be with them. That is the incarnation. It's a rescue plan. And the Old Testament is the history of this being worked out. The New Testament, what we're about to read, is actually how it plays out. And that's what we're going to read together. How did Jesus do it? How did he restore us to the Father? And where do we find ourselves? You guys, it's a grand and it's a beautiful story. Is it confusing at times? Absolutely, but we're here together. <laughs> we're here to help each other out. And we're here to anchor ourselves back into the word of God. Because there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that we desperately need, that I desperately need. And every time I go back and read again, I always see things and go, wow, that was there? No kidding. There's life in that word. There's life in the word of God. Amen? Amen. Now, of course, next week we begin. 
And this is all tied in, the New Testament reading is all tied into the small groups. Do we have, are we queued up here? All right. We are going to introduce the small group leaders. Now, here's what we're going to do. They're going to get up when we call their names, and they're going to go back into the back. And as we leave today, they might be uh, calling on you to join them. We have 12 group leaders. They're all meeting on Wednesday with two exceptions. The Kaisers are going to be meeting Sunday nights starting next Sunday at 6 p.m. at their house. Bob Avery. Bob is going to have a men's group that's going to meet on Friday morning at 6th Street Deli at 7 o'clock. Thursday morning. I think I had Friday on the website. Thank you. Thursday morning, 7 a.m. at 6th Street Deli. Is it Deli? Yeah, 6th Street Deli. Okay, so without further ado, I want to introduce to you your 2013 small group leaders. Yeah! In Harrisburg, Joshua and Carly Davis. That's right. And now the Junction City Groups, Terrell and Michael Kaiser. Vern and Colette Whitaker meeting at the home of Karen and Joshua Rivas. Stephen and Karen Hitchcock, who I have not seen this morning. Scott and Michelle Flora. Jenny McWilliams. Robert Avery. Mark Willem and Joe Lynn. Jim and Jill McReynolds! Paul and Ann Nunn! Joshua and Libby Gillette! They're in Santa Clara and one more Eugene area group Rachel and Rory Bakken! What wonderful groups! You guys, this is going to be an amazing journey, and I highly encourage you to join us. This is going to be a, a, a wonderful time that we can all get together and do the same thing, and it's going to be beautiful. Can we have the prayer team come forward? If you have any prayer needs today, please come, and these guys would love to pray for you. We love you, and we will see you next